Thank you again for the enormous privilege that you've granted me, especially in Advent, to uh, help prepare in this countdown for Christmas. The campaign to be the festive chart topper in the annual Song for Christmas competition has been one of the most hotly contested for, for decades now, uh, with unforgettable tussles from past years uh, between Westlife and Bob the Builder, um, that epic battle of the sexes between Girls Aloud and One True Voice, a boy band unless you're unsure, or for folks as old as me, which is pretty old these days, which of us can forget one of the biggest shocks ever, 30 years ago or more now, when Mr. Blobby took on Take That and triumphed. Well, it's not quite such a big deal these days, largely down to the impact of online streaming, but there's still a host of artists vying to be this year's number one including the freshly formed dynamic duo of singing-songwriting superstars Elton John and Ed Sheeran. But whether they will enter the coveted Christmas Hall of Fame, which includes classic performances by the likes of Johnny Mathis, When a Child is Born, or uh, Bob Geldof's Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, or the legendary Cliff Richard's Mistletoe and Wine, Only Time Will Tell. But every year sees the same enterprise, doesn't it? This yuletide race to be number one among all the hopeful contenders who line up to produce a song for Christmas, performed and presented uh, to the record-buying public, or more normally these days, offered to a computer-literate community for digital download. But whether it's the farcical festival ditties danced to by a trio of brummy dustmen who last year, you may remember, invited us to boogie around the bins at Christmas, uh, or the more polished orchestral renditions of traditional tunes performed by socially distanced musicians, this Advent season is strongly associated with song. Indeed, carols and Christmas are as inseparable as turkeys from bread sauce. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer from his red nose. But of all the songs for Christmas and of all the carols, the greatest surely of all time is the one that merits the attention of any who take the trouble to listen to its lyrics. It was the first song for Christmas ever composed and performed by a teenager a song whose words drew their inspiration from the most intimate of insights into the true reason for the season that we celebrate here and the world elsewhere. For ask yourself, who better than Mary, the mother of Jesus, could compose a carol or sing a song for Christmas? What other lyricists after her will ever make a contribution of greater value or of deeper significance than this young lass whose babe was born in Bethlehem? Now, there's no mention of mistletoe in her song, but allowing the words to play around our head is to invite the kiss of God's peace. There's no reference to wine in her song, but to drink in the truth of which her song speaks is to find our hearts gladdened afresh by the depths of God's love. This is a truly magnificent song. 
and I choose my words very deliberately. This is a song that magnifies our vision of the Almighty, the dimensions of whose nature thus expand and enlarge until we discover he is vastly, infinitely, boundlessly broader in glory and grace than the human heart can hold or our spirits contain. You see, in terms of its scope, we should realize that what we have before us this morning is more a cantata than a carol. Actually, more of a symphony than a song. Each verse, indeed each line, deserves to be developed and elaborated upon and amplified. And even then we will not exhaust its capacity to excite our emotions or inform our minds. Strictly speaking, this is not a song for Christmas. This is the song for Christmas and would reward the attention offered to each and every element of its composition much more than might be given by experts to a chorale composed by Bach or an operatic aria orchestrated by Puccini. Now we haven't the time of course but for a while let's begin to examine and explore four aspects of what may with I think full justification be described as Mary's opus magnum as we consider together the prelude, the tempo, the key and the score of which has come to be known by its first Latin word in translation, magnificat. Think with me of the prelude, verses 46 to 49, if you have your Bibles open. Musically speaking, the prelude is that part of a composer's work which introduces the listener to the main themes around which the rest gets composed. It literally contains the keynotes which will, in various modulations and variations, recur again and again throughout the whole piece. And this is exactly what we find in Mary's song, if you look, whose introductory prelude has twin themes, the goodness of God and the greatness of God. Think of the goodness of God then. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Whatever else these phrases convey, we're left in no doubt, are we, that Mary, for Mary, the overarching emotion that she experiences in this moment when she opens her mouth to pour out the contents of her soul is not one of self-important pride, but of self-effacing privilege. The fact is, neither in these words, nor indeed anywhere else in her song, does Mary mention that she's about to become the mother of the Son of God? Although that's the stupendous reality that underlies her joy, rather what she felt compelled to convey from a heart it seems fit to burst is a fresh and more fulsome realization of one aspect of God's nature which has suddenly become magnified in her mind. Here is a moment a wondrous moment of dawning recognition that for all her faith in and worship of God up until this moment, and despite, I'm sure, the genuineness and the authenticity of her experience in and expression of them both, that she knew her primitive concept of God and the descriptive criteria she'd used of him perhaps up till now had been actually 
staggeringly stunted. They've been too puny, too petty, too paltry. Listen again to her song in the language in which Luke records the opening strain of the song she sings. Megalunai, hei psuche mu tonkurion, magnify, O soul of mine, the Lord. Mary is instructing her soul to enlarge and expand the dimensional scale by which she has measured her master up until now. She is commanding her heart to tear down the boundaries in which she had too long confined and constricted him. Now that her understanding had been stretched, her perception widened, her awareness increased as to what her almighty Savior was capable of doing in the life of a nobody like her. She knows she's been using the wrong yardstick an utterly inadequate index with which to evaluate God's goodness. So she tells herself, increase the scale to mega. Give me the word again, mega lunai. Increase the scale to mega by which you judge the goodness of God. See, Mary knew that there was nothing in her which merited such munificent mercy from the hand of one who was so mighty. She was in as much need of the salvation being brought to birth in her womb as any other. See, the only status, if you look at her song, that she owns is that of a servant. Now, there are others, as some of you may know, who today elevate Mary with titles like Mother of God, Our Lady of Comfort, Queen of Heaven. But the word that Luke employs here is doule. It's a term that was used in Luke's day for a female slave. That's Mary's word. And in first century Palestine, few ranked lower on the ranks of, social, of the social ladder than a teenage slave girl from the back of beyond. And yet God had been mindful, she says, of her low, her humble state. The words here carry this sense. He specifically focused his favorable attention upon me. Though most would consider me utterly insignificant, my life completely inconsequential. And here is the place where our worship, sisters and brothers in Jesus, should be ignited, where our expressions of gratitude should become more effusive, when we realize and recognize afresh the sheer magnitude and goodness of God to the likes of us. Amen. Now, of course, Mary's role in the Lord's plan was utterly unique. But is our conception of God's goodness and grace expansive enough to acknowledge that our relationship with God is the result of the self-same, unspeakable generosity? Are our minds and hearts not completely blown away with the almost unspeakable wonder that the sovereign Lord of the universe has included us in his kingdom-building plans? Staggering.
this nativity was brought about and brought to birth in the life of a non-entity. But is that not almost always the way of God's saving grace? Do you remember what Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many noble by human birth. Now, undoubtedly, in past years, a fair few from among the record-purchasing public have favoured the likes of both Bob the Builder and Mr. Blobby with sufficient musical merit to select their seasonal songs at Christmas time. And many more will no doubt do the same with Ed Sheeran, perhaps, and others. But would you expect the Prime Minister to include them in the next cabinet picks for high office? Mind you, given the esteem with which Boris Johnson has recently publicly applauded Peppa Pig, I suppose it is just possible with this Premier. But spiritually speaking, that's precisely what God did with Mary and what he's done with every single believer in this place. Listen again to part of Paul's expansive claims for Christians like us in Ephesus. The sense, sense the astounded wonder he feels himself and which he now invites them to share. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, his good pleasure, which he has purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Every believer has by the goodness of God been invited to play a part in the sovereign plan of Almighty God to transform the destiny of the world. Doesn't that thought transform every moment we live? Ought it not to inform every task we undertake in his name and our part in the mission of the church? But that's just one of the themes in the prelude. There's a second, the greatness of God. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You see, in this too, Mary's vision of God has become magnified. He is a mighty, majestic, miracle-working God whose handiwork carries the hallmark of holiness. Why does the mind of modern men and women instinctively object to the very possibility of such wonders as the virgin birth, the miracle of the incarnation, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man, as Charles Wesley described in this unparalleled event in human history so poetically in a song of his a couple of centuries ago. Well, I'll tell you why. Because our God is too small. 
He is no bigger than the diminutive dimensions of our earthbound imagination. And yet to reduce the greatness of God to such pint-sized proportions in which too many place him is to have learned nothing from Mary's song. In a moment at the climax of our service we will sing these poetic paraphrase of Mary's words written by Timothy Dudley Smith. I'm sure you will know it. Tell out, my soul, the greatness of his name. Make known his might, the deeds his arm has done, his mercy sure, from age to age the same, his holy name, the Lord, the mighty one. We find exactly these sentiments in the word of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Ah, sovereign Lord, he says, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. When I wrote that, reminded myself of that text in my notes, I, I had a little song playing around in my mind. It was written by Don Moen. Perhaps some of you know it. Oh, great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty in deed, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is impossible for thee. I think Don got hold of Jeremiah's sentiments. See, what Mary is telling us here, as indeed does the record of every other life touched by the Lord, as documented in the pages of this gospel, Luke's, indeed all the other gospels come to that, is that God is not wanting to show us strong on his behalf, but rather himself strong on our behalf. There's a world of difference between the two. He's not out to demonstrate what we can do for him, but what he can do and will do in us. Let me quote again from the language of Luke. You may hear this word mega again. Epoiesin moi megala hodunatos. Literally, he has done in me mega things. The powerful one. Here is the source of the believer's joy and happiness. It's not to be discovered in the kudos that accrues to having done something wonderful for God. Even if that means, as it did for Mary, bearing in your body and then giving birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Rather, it, explains, it is explained in the certainty, as Paul put it to, in his letter to the Philippians, it is God who works in you according to fulfill his purposes. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he said something similar. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In the words of William Carey, whom our BMS guest quoted last Sunday, yes, you may attempt great things for God, but expect great things from God. Mary adds a little thought. Namely, that the handiwork of him whom she calls the powerful one, the mighty one, carries the hallmark of holiness. Holy is his name. You see, God's greatness and God's goodness are of a piece. Divine power and divine purity walk hand in hand. And to experience the former is to give evidence of the latter. To be touched by his goodness is to be driven not only to tell out of his greatness, but to show forth his holiness. And that's why Mary's child, 
grew up to tell his followers in his famous Sermon on the Mount, not be holy for the Lord your God is holy. That's Old Testament. He said, be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. The lifestyle of the disciples of Jesus is to be different from that of other people in that it draws its inspiration not from the norms of society but from the character of God. And given that truth, I am deeply challenged by the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon who told his congregation, in proportion as a church is holy, is that proportion in that proportion will its testimony to Christ be powerful. That's the prelude. More briefly, let's look secondly at the tempo. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. You know, there has never been a moment, no era, no age, not one generation in all human history that has not witnessed the baton beat of God's grace in the lives of those who have come to reverence him. Even in the darkest days, God has not left himself without a witness, as Paul says. The pulse of his affection for humanity has throbbed throughout the artery of time. And in every generation, there have been those who've been able to point others to the tempo of God's heartbeat, the rhythm of his kindness. Believers who themselves have felt the, the cadence of God's compassion and clemency, who have sought to show to others around them how they may learn to play both in tune and in time to the music of his mercy. The God revealed in Mary's song has been a conductor showing infinite patience with our duff notes and our cracked sounds. Forbearance and forgiveness measure out the meter of the gospel. When asked by the church that looked to his leadership why Jesus hadn't produced his advent, his second coming, his parousia, Peter explained why that moment was set at a pace that musicians would call largo, maybe even largissimo. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Mercy is the tempo of the song for Christmas. The God in whom Mary's soul glorifies is slow to become angry. He is full of covenant love. Compassion is the measured pulse that marks out the time he gives to women and men to respond to his offer of forgiveness and pardon. It's always been thus. Listen to Jeremiah. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. To our God, for he will freely pardon. And with the birth of the babe of Bethlehem, the means by which a holy God was able to make good on his proffer of free and full forgiveness was made flesh and blood. As Paul says, powerfully summarizing this purpose of God, 
in sending Jesus. If anyone is in the Christ, a new creation has come. The old, gone. The new, come. The advent of the new. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Corrie ten Boom, whom some of you will know in her book, Tramp for the Lord, shares an illustration of the nature of God's forgiveness. Let me quote, I w- it was in 1947, I'd come from Holland to a defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was a truth that they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown When we confess our sins, I would say, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And then God places a sign out there that reads, no fishing allowed. But sadly for too many, the trouble has been that they've not been able to register the key in which the Lord plays all his compositions, including this one. So let's look at Mary's key Verses 52 and 3. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. God's key signature is unique. It is unlike anything a human composer would choose because, look at it, it invariably flattens the high notes and sharpens the low notes. Have you seen that key before, Paul? I don't think so. This is God's key. God upsets all the musical theories of mortal maestros. The Lord's arrangements reverse all the accepted concepts of what brings harmony to humanity, of what brings melody to mankind. You see, those who live for power or possessions or those who play along with the idea that status or wealth is what determined destiny, will find themselves out of tune with the God of whom Mary sings. You see, if you think you're already full, you won't feel any hunger for the one Mary bore who grew up to call himself bread that came down from heaven. And if you've already quenched your thirst at the table of the self-satisfied, you will not drink as do parched and panting disciples from the well of the one whose mission and ministry was to pour out his spirit on all flesh, who will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, as Jesus says. So the message of Mary's song is no different to that which her unborn son would grow up to tell the world. Again in his famous Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. This is the key in which Mary sings and by which Jesus teaches us to live. There is no blessing in grabbing or in getting There is no blessing in choosing to live as if we are here to build a private empire, a personal kingdom. And unsurprisingly, this is the key in which the psalmist sang, wasn't it? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
And it's precisely because the earth is his that he can give it to whomsoever he chooses. And Jesus tells us his choice. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. They will inherit the earth. It is to be the inheritance of people like Mary, whom God chose, not because she was special, but because she was ordinary, but humble. He loves to choose those who have nothing. No, they deserve nothing, for he wants to delight to give them everything. That's why Jesus went on in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the words. Why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor, they don't spin. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Your heavenly Father knows you. you need them. But seek first his kingly rule and his righteous ways and all these things will be given to you as well. But this key dictates not only how we live under the kingly rule of God personally, it will determine how we as a people of God under God establish his kingdom globally. If the poor and the hungry and the enslaved are to know God's blessing, then he would have to win a victory over the bullies and the power brokers and all the forces of oppression which people like Mary knew all too well, living as she did in the dark days of Herod the Great, whose casual brutality was backed up by the physical threats of his Roman overlords. And so in prophetic hope she sings, as others had sung before her, in the assurance that God's kingdom would come and his will shall be done on earth as in heaven. And through Mary we hear the insistent voice of the marginalized longing for hope and justice and fairness. And no Christian should simply spiritualize this promise that these lyrics contain and simply tell the the weak and the needy that though for the moment they may be disregarded and discounted, that the day will come when God will level up the playing field? No. For us to sing or to listen to the Magnificat is to hear its mandate to work for God's kingly rule of fairness and freedom, of justice and truth, in which poverty and hunger and war and want are ended, not tomorrow, Let's start today. Suzanne, bid us to pray for a whole host of countries, some of whom where thousands upon thousands are starving. What are we going to do about that, sisters and brothers? Pray? Yes, of course, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. But our mandate is to take the song and to make it real in the lives of those He who taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, commands us to lay ourselves open to be the very agency through which God's kingly rule is shown and sought, willed and worked for, to be the answer to this prayer ourselves. There is a future dimension, but God's will can come on earth now through you and me. The last thing, briefly, the score. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You know, we call this volume in which this song is set the New Testament, as indeed it is. It is a radical new statement of God's love. But what Mary's song for Christmas helps us realize is that it isn't the music of God's love that's new. It is only the instrument upon which it is to be played. The score is exactly the same as it always been. Abraham himself and all of Israel's ancestors who truly trusted God would recognize and identify this music. In the same way that you and I might recognize and identify the familiar strains of, I don't know, the first Noel, even if it was played by a Jamaican reggae band or the massed pipes uh, of the Queen's own Highlanders, The gospel promise was first made to one whom Paul the Apostle calls the father of all those who believe. He gets an honorable mention in Mary's song. Did you notice? Abraham. And what was the promise? You know it. I will be your God. You will be my people. And do you know who sings last in the Bible? God. And what's his message in the book of Revelation? I am your God, and I have come to live with you, my people. And so that well-known Advent carol, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, is as justified when it calls Jesus Israel's hope and consolation as it does when it goes on to describe him as dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. When God sent Jesus It didn't, it didn't represent the scrapping of an out-of-date score, but rather a glorious rearrangement, a new orchestration of the same melody that formulated in God's holy mind when he brought the world into being. The same song that, as it were, played across his lips as he fashioned humankind, male and female, from the dust of the earth, and as he later crooned in the covenant which he established with Abraham and his descendants forever, the same score, the same score, I will be your God, you will be my people. Now for sure, the syncopation, the modulation, the arpeggios, the ardagios, the crescendos, the fortissimos are grander, they are broader, they are deeper, they are longer than anything Abraham ever heard or even dreamed of. But it is the same score. Don't jettison the Old Testament as if it has nothing to say. The same score is being played. The Lord has always loved us, enough to send his own dearly beloved son to die for us. From the manger to the cross, from Bethlehem to Calvary, God was in Christ, remembering to be merciful calling to mind his age-long covenant promise to show mercy. But now that covenant is going to be ratified, not in bull's blood or in sheep's blood, but in the blood of his only dearly beloved son. Through the crucifixion and sacrifice of Jesus, the child even now growing in Mary's womb. And as we come now to remember in climax, in celebration, sharing bread and wine, And this is the score, sisters and brothers, from which we now play the music of the same gospel.
For this song for Christmas is ours too. And not just for the festive season, but for every season. So may the Lord give to each and every one of us who know the score when it comes to the good news of the gospel. Give opportunities this Advent to acquaint others with this sensational, sin-forgiving, life-enriching, soul-transforming and magnifying sound of the Saviour who is the true reason for the season. Jesus, God's gift for life, not just for Christmas. So, whether or not you purchase and play any of the festive singles composed and performed by this year's wannabe chart-topping Yuletide number one, may we each of us commit to live in and to live out the lyrics of Mary's song for Christmas. And every day, by life and by lip, declare, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit will rejoice in God my Saviour. Well, let's come now as we climax our worship to respond to the challenge of God's word, both read and preached, our encounter with the Lord in worship we have shared, in our songs, in our hymns, through our prayers and our praise and intercession. As we now take bread and wine in remembrance of Christ, as he commanded Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come not because of any goodness of our own gives us the right to come, but because we need God's mercy and help. We come because we love the Lord a little and long to love him more. We come because he loved us, gave himself for us. We come to meet the risen Christ, the Advent Lord, for we are his body. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you, worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul tells us of the institution of this meal and its meaning. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in memory of me. In the same way, after they'd eaten, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until Advent. Let us pray. Loving Lord, we thank you, bless you, 
adore you for the gift of the life of your dearly beloved Son, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the cleansing of our souls, for the enriching of our life with your life, and for giving us the hope of heaven starting now. As we eat and drink, may it be feeding on you by faith in our hearts, glorifying our Saviour to the praise of his name. Father, in Jesus, hear our prayer. Amen. As we come to share these elements, we're going to sing a simple three-verse song. We're going to pause between the verses and then partake first of the bread, then of the wine. But let's remain seated throughout and sing that first verse. Here is bread. said this is my body which is for you do this in memory of me having given thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples said take eat receive me with thanksgiving in your heart let's eat together together here is grace
the same way after they'd eaten, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, sealed by my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in memory of me. So drink this, and remember that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Here we are, let's sing together. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were far away, you met us in your Son to bring us home. In his birth, life, death, and resurrection, he declared your love, gave us grace, opened the gateway to glory beyond imagining. May we who have shared the symbols of his body and blood live his risen life. We who have drunk from his cup, bring the wine of the kingdom to others. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us in the song of Mary today, so that we and all who know you may share the melody of your mercy, and all may hear heaven's song of salvation to the praise of your holy, holy, holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Tell out my soul the greatness of his name. We stand to sing. Mm -hmm.